there everyone and you're in for a treat today for my guest Pamela Fogarty is a woman of many interests and her life is well I would call it a collection of many different experiences and ideas one of which has given me quite a surprise but more of that later so welcome Pamela do you want to be Pam or Pamela? Pam. Pam. <laughs> now, I noted that the first focus goes right back to your roots, as your mother was Jewish. Was your father Jewish? That's right. Yes, my mother was Jewish, and she came over here during the Second World War. She lived in Vienna, and her brother Karl was taken into Dachau, which is a camp in, uh, I think it's in Poland, and... Uh, her mother got very sick with pneumonia because she missed her son so much. And my mm. mother wrote to Hitler to ask him to release Karl. And he was released. He She had to go to the SS um, place in Austria, which is was Rothschild's um, palace. And the officer there said to her, how dare you write to Hitler? Mm. And my mother said, well, you would if your son had been taken for no reason. Anyway, she, he was released, which was quite unusual. That's amazing, isn't it? it to it, write to Hitler, the courage. I mean, Hitler could have not quite set off with a head, but, you know, done something nasty. Yes, I don't know if money was involved. I don't know how it came about, but, yes, he was released. But he was told not to say anything about his experience in uh-huh. Dachau, and he couldn't say too much in the first few weeks because he was traumatised. But gradually he started talking about what it was like. And he was told to leave Austria and he went to France and he joined the French underground resistance movement. And he was captured again in Vichy and sent to Auschwitz. And that's where he he was and he died, I, I think, at the end of the war for whatever reason, maybe yes. hunger. Were you alive then? Did they have you at that time? No, because this is before my mother came over to this right. country. Right, But they told you all about it, I'm sure. She Mother did, mother and did. I wrote her biography. Oh, right. um, and so I've got a record of many things that she told me about. Wow. And oh. that, it's good to have that. So you've got that always at the back of your mind, a concern and a, a sympathy for those who are Jewish. Absolutely, yes. yes. <laughs> and right. um, her mother didn't want to come to away from Vienna because she didn't believe that Hitler would invade Austria. But my mother knew, she was only 18 at the time, and she knew that she had to get out because there was a code... Um, the sea is rough, and so she left. Right. And she she had she was actually got permission to go to the America, but she actually had this job with a as a companion to Lady Guthrie in Dover, mm-hmm. and that's where she went. And she lived with um, this Lady Guthrie until the bomb started to fall in Dover, mm-hmm. and then she went to a place in Belmont in Surrey as a nanny. And that's where she met my father. Um, and then they got married and mm. had three children. Did I they tell you of their experiences a lot as a, when you were a child? Did you un- learn it from them at the mother's knee or they keep it for later? Keep it for later. 
Yeah. That's probably just... But probably ingrained in you is a sort of um, uh, an understanding and a sympathy for Jewish people. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I had very little to do with being um, the child of a Jewish mother, even though they say if you your mother is Jewish, then you follow that tradition of being Jewish yourself. But I didn't go to the synagogue. And mum wasn't even allowed to speak... German because that was the alien language at the time so mm. I never learned German and she wasn't allowed to speak German mm. and you went to a Baptist church was that after you were living on your own away from your parents or that that was when I was a child it was the all right so the they didn't mind you going to no, a Baptist church no, no. I, I was baptized into the Church of England uh-huh. uh, because that was the religion that was what and you did yes that was what, what you did but I actually did go to the I, do, I, do, I can't remember whether it was a Baptist church or Plymouth Brethren but I loved the Sunday school I was always the first in the queue to to oh. go in <laughs> right so yeah. you have a sort of integral love of God whatever sort of religion it was at that time seems, yes. it seems so yes. yes we used to have a little booklet with uh, every week that you went to Sunday school, they gave you a, a picture which you stuck into this mm. little book and mm. with a verse underneath from the Bible. Yeah. And if you got more than 48 pictures a year, you had a prize at Christmas when they had the Christmas party. Oh, what was your prize? A what Bible. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Yes. No, but I just wanted to say my grandmother, she didn't come over to the UK. Or she didn't leave Vienna and... The, all the um, Jewish people in Vienna were rounded up in the second district and they went on the trucks and they were sent to the concentration camps. Mm. So she she mm. also, yes. Theresa Land or something, uh, one of the... Now I know you have told me that you left school at 15. Um, you weren't encouraged to stay on because subsequent, all these jobs you've been in, you know, shows you've got a good enough brain. Well... Yeah, you could say that, but the the reason I did leave was because at the school I went to, which was a Rygate County School for Girls, you had to get an average pass of about 48% of all the subjects mm. in your fourth year, right. and I didn't manage to do that. Because which was I, your favourite subjects were, you got some, I'm sure. Yes, you French excelled and in some. Yeah, science, yes, yeah. I, <laughs> but uh, no, anyway, but I didn't get the average mm. and I did leave <coughs> at the end of that fourth year because I didn't want to stay for another year in that same um, mm. level. Right. Um, and um, you took a job. Yes. Yes. What I, was your first job? I, I worked as a switchboard operator in um, at the back of a car showroom. It was a car showroom and a repair place for cars and I used to go to day release classes from 4.30 to 6.30 twice a week to study shorthand and a typing mm. and the teacher there the head teacher she said to me would you like to go to um, full-time secretarial course and I said yes I would so I took the exam and I started at the Red Hill Technical College doing full-time secretarial work Mm. And uh, yes, that I, I loved it. Notes here that there was even a sort of a little um, time when you didn't do that, but you went potato picking. 
Yes. Well, Noted. after after I finished at the college, at the technical school, yeah. I went to London to work in Arlington Street, which is just down the side of the Ritz Hotel. And I had a job as a shorthand typist, but there was my boss was away on holiday and there was nothing to do. And when the boss came back, um, there was still very little to do. So boring. I, boring. it was boring. Yes. And I left and I got a job potato picking <laughs> near near where I lived in Merston. Um, and then one evening after work, we went to the pub and the landlord told me about his daughter who had a job in the Wrens, the Women's Royal Naval Service, as a radio operator. And I thought, oh, maybe I could do something like that uh, as a stenographer. And I, I applied for to the Wrens and I, and I did get a job as a stenographer. Right. What a lot of collection of jobs. And that's sort of your first part of your life, isn't it? <laughs> I'm o- I was only 18 then. Because uh, did you marry... Uh, that early or you did marry early didn't well you? i i went into the wrens oh the wrens came first and right. yes and i went square bashing at hms dauntless in reading where you did a parade ground training and you learned about the navy that was for a month and then i moved on to chatham where i did uh, my training as a stenographer that was the category and then i was posted to plymouth command and I worked at um, where the officers had a place in Plymouth Command. It's Devonport, it's called. And I did the Daily State, which was the ships that came and went out of the dockyard. HMS Drake, that was the dockyard there. And one day I was asked if I would do a board of inquiry on a ship. Mm-hmm. And I was escorted onto the ship to the captain's office and took the minutes of a meeting Someone had stolen cryptographic material, which is um, top secret stuff from the safe. Mm. So that was what exciting. I, yeah, <laughs> just nice being on board a ship. Oh right. So that mar- marriage. I know you're married now to John, but your first marriage. Tell me about. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I left the Wrens after two years, mm-hmm. and um, I got married when I was twenty. And I had two children. And um, what can I say about my marriage? I don't know. Well, tell me about your children. Children. Were they a character like you and your husband? Or what was special about your children? Um, Well, they were were fairly (laughs) quiet. They were good children. Mm. Um, I, I used to work in a nursery school at that time and took... The children, well, my son anyway, to start off with. Then he started school. Uh, yeah. They they were they went to a Catholic school because my husband John Class he was Catholic, mind you, he was a lapsed Catholic, but he still wanted the children to be. Yes, they usually do, don't they? Catholic. Yeah. Um, mm. And um, my but, daughter came with me to the nursery school, and yes. I I really enjoyed that. I have in the notes that she was quite ill at one point. Well, that was late, later that was on later. in life, yeah. yes. Yeah, she was fine before but then. She was fine before that. Mm. Um, and I'm moving on to other jobs. I don't know how you fit them all in, but tell me about your probation service job. Uh, yes. Have you, have you said probation, about that? Right. Well, I went to work at the probation service as a 
um, secretary. But in the 1990s, the government, uh, when everybody had laptops and computers, said that the probation officers could um, do their own reports, which meant we we had to find another job. So they offered us oh. other other jobs within the probation service. Mm. And I took the job of a CMO, which meant case management officer, because I didn't like the idea of doing um, reception or one of the other mm. jobs that they offered us. And that was the best thing I could ever have done because... What did it mean? What did you have to manage? Well, we worked parallel to the probation officers who did the medium to high risk cases and the CMOs, which that was my job, was the low risk to medium. And the probation officers... You had to check them for well, something Well, like after they've been arrested and taken to court, right. um, they, have, they either have a probation order... Um, to do their um, punishment, I suppose you could call it, or they go have a prison sentence. Mm. Um, so I could, my I was the supervisor of this order of this um, mm. sentence. In a, Ooh, yeah. so you were part of the decision of which way they went, as it were. You had to get to know them. Yes. Did you feel at, at one with them sometimes, or did you have to hold back your disgust at what they'd done? Well. I will tell you about the first person that I saw. He had just come out of prison and the probation officer, because they were very annoyed, the fact that us CMOs had been taken on within the probation service, I think she asked me if I would go and see this person and interview him because he'd just come out of prison. So that's what they do. They have to report Mm. to us and then they come and they they have weekly appointments and then they go into two weekly, monthly and Mm -hmm. so on. Um, and I went, she gave me the file. I went down to the interview room where he was and I greeted him and um, I, I said to him, well, what's going on? You know, you've just done your prison sentence and you, you're out now. Um, tell me about what happened. What, what was your offence? And he told me he was the getaway driver for a big bank robbery in Germany. Ooh. Well, I just sat there in a bit of... <laughs> Panic and fear, and but I got over that, and well I done. just talked, you know, and asked him, did he think prison had helped him with the courses that he'd been on, and he said it had, and you know, so on and so forth, mm. and uh, then just started talking about him and what he was going to do with his life from that moment, which is the difficult part because they go back to where they came from, back mm. home. Mm. So, uh, so that that was. I suppose, being thrown in at the deep end. Mm, absolutely. But you, you managed it and you managed it well. And, and it was good uh, to be thrown in at the deep end. And it probably made you more of what you are now. All these different experiences have built up to yes, yes this assurance you have. And right. I stayed at the probation service uh, doing that job for 10 years. Oh. <laughs> I probably can't dip in on all the jobs and things you have, but one struck me that you are a trained Montessori teacher. Yes, that that was before I worked in the probation yes. service. Sorry, we missed that one out right. time-wise. But do tell me, what is the particular um, way of teaching that Montessori schools have? Well, it, it's it is very it is interesting. It's what what they learn is through didactic material. 
the equipment, material being equipment. And they learn through play and through understanding like you have rods, you might have a long rod, which is a 10 rod, and then you'd have a nine. So it goes in. So they sort of mass could be shown physically. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And and also, to, you know, so that you say, say to them, they go and pick up these rods. They can see that the number 10 rod is long and it's not mm. an easy one for a small child to carry. Mm. And they take it from the shelf and bring it over to... Um, You've got a felt mat on the floor, which they have put down. Then they go take them one by one, these rods, and they can see the difference. They can feel the weight and the difference between mm. each of the rods. Then they put it into some into the order. The, the long rod is at the top, and then the number nine. And you have here is, is the right left-hand side, which is they all meet at that point mm, down interesting. there. Interesting. Does this mean that there wasn't any um, total class teaching? You were helping an individual or was it a mixture? You, yes, it's a mixture. You, right. they, you do individual teaching. You do a demonstration of whatever the task is mm-hmm. and then the child will do it and then the next week, they, hopefully they were, or the next time they do it, they will remember what to do and... Yes, and they, it'll have more effect in their brain for later in life than if they've just written on paper a, yes. a math sum. It's like teaching a child one and one is two. It's just, they're just words. Yes. Where yes. here you can, pr- this rod, number one rod, if you have another one mm-hmm. rod, it is the same length as the second rod. Yes. We don't tell the child that. It just feels it and sees what, what's going on. Yes. Are there, I suppose there are books and there are thoughts on this, how far a Montessori-trained child has more about him or understanding of life than others? Very much so. You think so? Mm. Of course. I I have to just tell you a little bit about... fishing out some notes on this. Right. If I can find uh, it. If yes. you can find it. Just a, a little bit. So, yeah, the, the Montessori method of teaching was developed by Maria Montessori, who was an MD. She went to university. She was the first woman to attend university oh. in Italy by making the A of her name, Maria, into an O. They thought she was a man. Oh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so the men at the university weren't very happy having her there, but she... Um, was persistent and mm-hmm. anyway she was there so she Maria Montessori observed and followed the internal law of development in children she used her scientific and medical background to observe children in order to develop a natural means of educating them do you wish just to break into you thank you this is interesting um of what you say <laughs> do you wish that the Montessori way of teaching was available in all education authorities and schools? I, I think it's a, it is a fantastic system. Yes. And it, I, I would it... have liked to have started my own nursery school, but for whatever reason, I, mm. I didn't know how to go about it. Oh. And is it just function on a nursery level? or do they You can do it through into... the school system. Right. But normally they, the parents send their children up until the age of five, 
Right. And then they send them on to the state schools or private schools. Wow. I know you've got so much we could take hours and hours and hours, but that was really interesting to know about that. But now to uh, one of the main features, as um, you and John came here today, it was we were talking about it, Focolari. Now, some people haven't heard of that word. Mm. I haven't heard of it. Um, yeah. And so if you could just, out of your mind, tell me, not just reading everything, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's a movement. Yes. And it was founded by, was it a pope or? Chiara Lubick, yes. Um, And um, what is the main difference between that and basic Christianity? Do you know? Well, the main difference is that um, the Focolari movement, and I think possibly all movements, I'm not sure, but they incorporate all the different denominations within Christianity Yes. and other religions, and they bring them together. It, this wasn't the first, Focolari isn't the first movement that ever came about. It goes back into the 19th oh, century. Right. right. Um, but Chiara Lubick was a Catholic, but um, she met Lutherans who were interested in her thinking and her yeah. understanding of living the spirituality of unity and living Jesus' last will and testament, which is that all may be one, all being everyone in the world. So how do you deal with that? Well, you do bring other uh, references out to say that, um, you know, those who don't believe in me are not going on afterwards with me. Right. And, you know, there is distinct differences between Christianity, and I'm sure Christianity would love and include and help, but they wouldn't say someone was a believer unless they knew Jesus and yes. were born again, right? Yes. Mm. You, so you sort of cover uh, lovingly more people who are religious, not necessarily Christian. Is well, right? I I do meet with a group of Shia Muslims as well, mm. and uh, I know that there are other people. Um, in the UK that meet with um, the right. Hindus right. and so it goes on all around the world mm. and, it, and it started somewhere else was it Italy? Italy Italy that's right yes yeah. is it still um, flourishing here in Britain are I there different fo- focus points for it? But there, or, I, there are people all over the the country. UK who yeah. are involved in the Focolari yes and it's just such a fascinating and it's just a wonderful thing to believe in and to have in your heart. You know, it's it's doing Open the will of everybody. God. Right. And you, uh, just as you came here today, tell me where you were last night. <laughs> well, last night we were at the Focolari Centre in Welling Garden Welling City. Garden City. Yeah. Um, we were... We were sort of Focolari staff, we stayed overnight because there was a group of um, bishops, Anglican bishops and their secretaries Mm -hmm. having a meeting and it's a three-day meeting so we'll be there again tonight just to... Right, so this is current to you and it's part of your life together and with your husband now, John. Yes, yes, yes. I'm very lucky he comes along with me. Oh, did you... Let me guess. Did you meet him through the Focolari movement? No, we we met oh. on a parish trip. It was through 
through the church. It was right. through the Catholic Church. Okay. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, what a, just a, what appealed to you straight away about him and his giftings, John? Well, I, what appealed? It wasn't love at first sight. It was we were on a. It was kind of a pilgrimage, and uh, you know, it was special being on the pilgrimage anyway mm. with everybody. Um, but I did. We did go out together once we got back to home. Yes. And and when he asked me to marry him five months later, I have to admit I was very shocked. And <laughs> I, I, I wanted I wanted a companion Honored, in my life. Think, yes. <laughs> and I said yes. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, and as we have heard a few podcasts back, he has his story too. Right. And you had... A holiday in the Loire Valley. Tell me, was that yes, we came. We only came thing. back last week. Well, oh. we went by car. It was a big procedure about with the COVID problem. Oh and, yes, um, but and a petrol problem right now. Mm. Oh yeah, fortunately we didn't have the petrol problem. <laughs> yes. Oh right. Now there's one last sort of thing before we conclude that I that I'm surprised to hear from you. You were set up with a wonderful man, um, but today there is a big push of honouring women because mm. women haven't had a share of things for so long from voting and um, oh, oh, there seem to be currently so many poor young women who are attacked on the way home, which nobody, no woman would attack a man you know, that way. And yet um, you believe that the man and a boy ought to be thought of as more important. No, I'm not saying they should be more important. Yes, they should be treated differently to the way they treated. are treated. Yes, so um, unpack that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's right that a woman should be attacked. I think that's terrible. Mm. But how do we avoid men behaving like that? How do we change men's behaviour? That's what I would like to right. think about. So... And our, steps towards it. And the steps towards it. I think women could play a big role in making men a lot happier, a lot fulfilled, right. and to feel good about being a father and to be respected for that role and to be loved more, as much and more than the children, because the children came second. And I, you know, the children are a gift. But a husband is somebody special or a partner, mm. or I, however mm. people live their lives. And yeah. I think I think um, a husband and a father needs a lot more attention and respect and he deserves to feel, be treated differently to the way he is. And I know it's tough for the wife. I know things can get difficult. But when they get difficult, she has the ability and and is able to make things better between in the family mm. i'm sure it's possible that's well, her role uh, i don't think you'll find people queuing up to agree with you there but thank you so much for putting up such a lovely point of view on that right i think we need to conclude well now. if we want to change the world that's one way to do it <laughs> <laughs> oh it's really interesting it has been to follow all your threads of your life up to now. Thank you so much for sharing your views and telling us about yourself, your history, your family, your jobs, and this St Albans podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Baby 